0: I need you every hour. I need you. We can sing it all day long. I don't think it makes it any more redundant. The truth, the reality is, is that we need Him far more than we can possibly ever grasp. That we could possibly ever comprehend. We need Him. You know, it's interesting. As I was reading this week through the Gospels and through some of Paul's letters, just just casually reading, it was interesting to me how many times Paul and even Christ speaks of the love that God has for us, and how few times Paul especially speaks of the love that we have for God. Interestingly enough it's only a handful of times whenever we see in the scriptures where we love God Jesus makes this commandment this new commandment I give to you love the Lord your God with all your heart mind soul and strength it's simply a derivation of the deuteronomy uh, the passage out of Deuteronomy uh, here Israel the Lord your God is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind soul and strength uh, and so but most of the time in the New Testament we see the scripture talking about Our love, I'm sorry, God's love for us. Why? We love because He first loved us. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. As we continue to study the book of Matthew, it's important for us to remember What we're studying, we've been talking about the book of Matthew now for some time, and we understand that the book of Matthew has a specific author, audience, and a specific theme, and so we want to be sure and remember that. And so the book of Matthew was written by Matthew. Let's try that again. The book of Matthew was written by Matthew. See, that was an easy one. The book of Matthew was written to whom? It was written to? The Jews, and it was written to portray Jesus in a certain light. It was written to portray Jesus as the son of David. David. Very good. So we see Matthew written by Matthew to the Jews to portray Jesus as the son of David. And we're going to see an an instance in today's passage where we see the theme of Matthew highlighted. So we're going to be reading this morning Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. The twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two tunics or sandals or staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. And abide there until you go your way. And as you enter into the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of the house or out of that city, shake off the dust from your feet. For truly I say to you, it will be, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you that in your rich abundance of goodness that you shower upon us, Lord, that you gave us the commission to go and preach the good news. To share the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus with all those we come in contact with. Lord, may we see your instruction here in Matthew chapter 10 to the disciples, and may we be able to make application to our own lives. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, I pray that as you leave this church this morning, that you will be able to to speak, that you will be compelled to speak about what God has done in your life. That you will, be, you will be so overwhelmed with the, with the miracle, with the amount of goodness and blessings that God has poured out upon you, that you cannot help but speak about what you've seen and what you've heard. Last week we looked at Jesus' commissioning, and, and he, he called the disciples, He, he set them apart, and, and He sent them out. And, and what was interesting about the disciples was the ordinariness of the disciples. There was nothing, nothing extraordinary about them. They were, in fact, the only thing that did stand out was their ordinariness, that they were a bunch of ragtag, a bunch of misfits. There was nothing extraordinary about the disciples, but we see that God often calls the ordinary to do the extraordinary, and that's, this is exactly where we are. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, and it says, these 12, The twelve that Jesus had called out, these twelve, Jesus sent out after instructing them. And so he sends these twelve out. And it's interesting that not only does God send the twelve here, but later on in the gospel he will send many more. And then in the very end of Matthew's gospel, he says, Go, and the commission is for all of us, that we are to, as we go, that we're to make disciples, we're to teach them to observe, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. So we see... This great commission, this great commission. And so, God sends not only the disciples, but God sends us. But I want us to notice why and when God sends us. Matthew chapter 10, chronologically, comes after Matthew chapters 8 and 9, right? It's the way numbers work, Matthew chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Well, here we are, Matthew chapter 10. Well, what has just taken place in Matthew 8 and 9? We a few weeks ago we looked at the concentration of miracles that we see in Matthew's chapter 8 and chapter 9. In all of the gospels we see Jesus performing approximately 35 miracles. That doesn't mean that Jesus only performed 35 miracles. We have a record of about 35 miracles, and there are plenty of other places in Scripture where it says, and Jesus performed many more deeds and many more miracles, and all of the books do not even contain these things. And so, so we understand that 35 miracles is not the exhaustiveness of Jesus' miraculous works, but we have 35 miracles about, give or take, of miracles that Jesus performed. In Matthew chapter 8, and Matthew chapter 9, we have 10 of those. Okay. So roughly a third of the miracles of Jesus are contained in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. And who was with Jesus to witness those miracles? I'm so glad you asked. The disciples. And so this is what I want us to wrap our brains around. The disciples were with Jesus when he healed the leper, when he healed the lame, when he calmed the sea. When he did all, they were with Jesus for all of these miracles, for all of these miraculous works. When Jesus casted out the demons, when Jesus has demonstrated his power over the things of this world, the disciples were with him. And it is only after that that Jesus sends them out. He doesn't call them and say, come follow me. Oh, by the way, while you're following me, take notes because I'm about to send you out tomorrow. They spend Time with Jesus. They walk with Jesus. They watch him cast out the demons. They watch him heal the leper. They watch him heal the lame. They watch him still the storm. And they say, Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey his command? And after all of this, after all of these miraculous works, after all of these signs and wonders, then Jesus says, Now go. And I want to point out, I want to point out that in Matthew, Jesus gives very specific instructions to whom they are to go. First, to Israel. Notice what he says. It's interesting. In Luke's account, in Mark's account, and in John's account, John doesn't even have the account of Jesus sending out the twelve, but in Luke's account and Mark's account, this phrase, but first go to the house of Israel, is not there. Why? Who's Matthew written to? The Jews. Matthew is writing to the Jewish people to remind them that the Jewish people, that you are the chosen people of God. That the gospel message first came to the Jews. Whenever Paul went into a city, where did he begin? He always began. Whenever Paul goes to, to Thessalonica, he, he initially goes to the synagogue. Whenever Paul goes to Macedonia, whenever Paul goes to... to, to uh, the regions in Galatia, and Paul goes to Derby, and Paul goes to Lystra, and Paul goes to all of these cities, the first place he stops is to the house of Israel. He goes to the synagogue. Why? Because they have a foundation. They understand the law of God. They understand Moses. They understand the, 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 the sin of the people. They understand the sacrificial system, and he has a framework from which to begin. And so the gospel message... The gospel message, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is salvation to all who believe. There's the power of God, salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That doesn't mean that the Gentiles don't get the gospel. It means that that Christ came first to the Jews, that they were God's chosen people, that, that Christ and the coming of Christ and the gospel doesn't nullify God's promise, but it fulfills God's promise the message of the gospel, even all the way back to Abraham. God called Abraham out. He called Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of Ur. And he said, I will bless you, and you and your descendants will be a blessing not only for you, but for all nations and all people. But it starts where? Israel. It starts with the people of God. And for the Jewish people... They saw this, this Jesus, this, this Jesus movement, this, this the way that had come about in the early church, that it was in contrast or in contrary to Judaism. And so the author of Matthew is writing to the Jews and saying, No, you don't understand. Jesus is not in contrast to Judaism. Jesus is not, the coming of the gospel is not in competition with the Old Testament, with the law, but rather it is a fulfillment of God's covenant. It is a fulfillment of the promise. So, the gospel goes first to Israel and then to all. What I want us to understand as well is that this is not in contrast to the Great Commission. This is not in contrast to other passages in the text where Jesus sends the disciples out to go and to preach the gospel to all peoples. This is not in in competition or in contradiction where Paul says, go and preach the gospel to all nations. This is not in contradiction with the Great Commission. But rather, this is a very specific command at a very specific time for a specific purpose. Christ is using this time to teach his disciples. He's using it as a teaching point, and we'll see this later on in the text. Jesus sends them out, and he comes back and he says, so tell me what happened. And let me give you some instructions. Let me teach you using this. We do this all the time as parents, don't we? We give our children very specific instructions, we send them out, and we say, okay, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. As coaches, we do this. Apparently Les Miles does but but everyone else, coaches, they, they give them very specific instructions. And after, the, after they do something, then they come back and they, they, they say, tell me what happened. What can we learn from this? How can we apply this to our life? And that's exactly what's going on right here. Not only does God send us, not only does God send us, but God directs us. God directs us. We must seek direction from the Holy Spirit in our commissioning there is a very specific and a very general direction that god gives us how many of you have ever asked the question to god god what is your will for my life anybody anybody ever said god i have no idea what you want me to do i don't know where to go to school i don't know what job to do maybe maybe you're 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 at a crossroads you say you know I, I don't know if I should go here or I should go there. And we just fall on our face and we say, God, and, and, and we do this. The reason I know we do this is because I do this, and I'm hoping I'm not the only one who does this. We then start playing the, the, the well, if this happens, then I'll know that this is God's will. And, and, and we start bargaining with God, and we start, we start putting out fleece. And we say, all right, God, if I go to work tomorrow... And, and so-and-so is ugly to me, then I'll know that that's a sign from God that, that, that I need to put out my resume and find another job. Or, or God, I'm going to call my mom, and if the first words out of her mouth are X, Y, and Z, then I know that, that, that this, is what, this is what you want for me. How many of you have, have ever done anything like that? And the rest of you are lying, so you're not raising your hands. We have a tendency, we have a tendency by nature to, to seek Direction from God. We want advice, we want direction, and that's natural. That's, that's, that's very human. I want us to understand that God gives us direction both generally and specifically. God will speak very generally throughout His Word Go ye therefore into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is a very general command, a very general direction. But then here, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus very specifically tells the disciples, go into this city, this city, this city, don't talk to Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, but go specifically to the house of Israel. And not only that, look at the text. He gives them even more specific instructions. Look at verse, look at verse 11 and verse 12. In whatever city or village you go, ask very specifically, who is worthy? And go and stay at their house. Verse twelve. And as you enter the house, give them your greeting. Verse thirteen. If the house is worthy, if they greet you kindly, then then. Verse uh, verse thirteen. If the house greets you kindly, if it uh, then let your greeting and your peace come upon them. But if it is not worthy, if they're mean to you, if they if they oppose you, then leave and shake the dust from you. He gives them very specific instructions and there are going to be times in your life whenever the Holy Spirit speaks very specific to you whenever whenever you know without a shadow of a doubt that that God is is directing me or God is leading me in this area or that area there are other times whenever it is going to be very general we see Matthew chapter 28 is a very general call look at Acts chapter 8 a very specific call (coughs) This is after the Great Commission, very general call. Acts chapter one eight. You'll receive the Holy Spirit when the power. Uh, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Very general. He said, "I'm going to send you, and you're going to be my witnesses everywhere." Okay, thanks. Appreciate that. But look very specifically. Acts chapter eight, verse twenty six. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, "Arise, go south." to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. He arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch. So the message in Acts chapter 1-8 is very general. Go everywhere. Acts chapter 8, verse 26, God spoke to Philip and said, Go to this road that goes from this city to this city. And he went there, and there was a guy from Ethiopia who was reading the book of Isaiah. A passage. It was clear what God's call to Philip was that day. Very specific. But then there are other points in Scripture where, where Paul is seeking direction from the God and he's, he's seeking direction from God and he's trying to go to Spain because he believed that that's where God wants him to go but God ends up, by His grace and by His providence, sending him other places. Very general and very specific. What is important is we must remember that we work with God, not for God. What is the direction In the instruction that we're given in Matthew chapter 10. I want us to notice the principles here. Jesus tells the disciples, when you go into the the city, be discerning. If there is kindness, if there is openness to the gospel, that is where I am already at work. Guys, this is something that I want us to grasp and I want us to understand. That God is at work everywhere around us. He's at work in your office. He's at work in your school. He is at work in your home, in your family. The Holy Spirit is working constantly in us, around us, through us. Our job Is not to work for God, but it's to work with God. Henry Backlaby said this, he said, find out where God is working and go there. Find out, use the Holy Spirit that is within you to give you discernment to determine where the Holy Spirit is working in and around you. How do you do that, preacher? Well, it's easy. You try and transition a conversation from LSU football to something spiritual. You try and transition the conversation from, from hunting or fishing or golf to something spiritual. And if the person is willing to, to make that transition with you and, 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 and you're able to say, so tell me, you know, what did your preacher preach about Sunday? Tell me about how how church was Sunday. You know, we we just started this 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 ministry at our church as a wonderful and and all of a sudden you've making the transition and if they go there with you and they're willing to engage the conversation, that is some insight. The Holy Spirit is working in their life. They're open to spiritual things. Whenever you talk about loss when you talk about hardships you talk about trial and we mention things like please pray for me or or how can i pray for you as you're going through difficult times and difficult circumstances we purposefully intentionally transition the conversation from the natural to the spiritual from the fleshly to the spiritual realm and discern whether or not the spirit of god is moving seek direction from the holy spirit and if the Holy Spirit is not at work in that person's life, that's okay. We trust that He will be later. We trust that God will work later. And we pray for them. And we shake the dust from our shoes and we move on. There's the principles, church. Seek the direction from God, both generally and specifically. But understand that we work with God, not for God. That God doesn't need us to go out and, and, and beat people over the head with the Bible. He's already working. We just have to find where He's working and participate with Him. Not only does God send us, not only does God direct us, but God supplies us. God supplies us. It's interesting, Jesus speaks to the disciples and this is what He says in verse 9. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belt. See Jesus told the disciples, they didn't need to get paid. Preacher, why well, don't, we don't need to pay you either. This is not an opportunity not to pay the servant of God. Jesus uses this as a teaching point. Later on, we will see Jesus giving very specific commands to His disciples not only to, to receive, uh, to receive gifts and receive uh, money, but he tells them very specifically later on in Luke chapter 22. In fact, turn with me, if you will. Luke chapter 22, verse 35 and 36. <clears throat> Luke chapter 22, verse 35 and 36. He says, when I sent you out, verse 35, he said to them, when I sent you out without purse, or without bag, or without sandals, did you lack anything? They said to him, no, nothing. He said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise a bag. Let him who has a sword sell it and robe and buy one. And so we see Jesus is referencing, the first time I sent you out, I told you not to take anything. Why? Because I wanted you to understand that God would provide for you, that, that you would learn to trust in him. You would learn to lean upon him. Parents, we do this with our kids, don't we? Whenever they're seven years old, do we tell them, look, you're old enough now. It's time for you to get out there and get a job. Because when your eighth birthday, cutting you off, that's it. You're on your own. No. As parents, we understand that it's our job to provide for our children, to take care of our children. And even when they're old enough to get a job, even when they're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, And they're able to to cut grass in the neighborhood and wash cars. And they're able to babysit. And they're able to to hold down a part-time job. We understand that there is value in them working. But the value in them working is not to provide for them, but to teach them what it means, what the value of a dollar is, to teach them the value of hard work, to teach them work ethic. And whenever they start bringing in $38 a week, We're not depending upon their $38 a week to make our family budget work. We are giving them this as an opportunity to teach them. We're using this as an opportunity to train them. It's interesting. Daniel, this this summer was the first summer that Daniel really began cutting grass. Began cutting the grass, and he began. He began helping with yard work. Uh, and now he, he, if the lawnmower dies, we're in trouble. Uh, he, can, he can, you know. Once, once, once I get it started for him, he's good. But if it dies, Katie barred the door. He, it, it, it I may come home and half the yard will be cut, and he'll be in there playing PlayStation. I'm like Daniel, what happened? Oh, the lawnmower died, and I couldn't get it started. And and so, but but this year he started. He started cutting the grass, and as he started cutting the grass. He, he, he's beginning to take on responsibility. And he, he's beginning to do some of these things. And, and now he wants, he wants to learn, uh, toward the end of the summer, he said, Dad, I want you to teach me how to weed eat. And so he wants to learn how to weed eat. And as a dad, I'm, I'm relishing this opportunity to teach my child, to teach Daniel the value of hard work. Now, oftentimes after Daniel gets done cutting the backyard, Dad has to go behind Daniel and cut the backyard again because there's strips this wide of grass that hasn't been cut, and there's a giant patch by the swing set that wasn't even touched, and and, and he got tired and, and said, Dad, it's too hot out there, and, and just gave up. And so dad goes back out behind him and cuts the grass. But as a parent, my greatest responsibility. It's not that he learns how to cut the grass. It's not that he learns how to wait on tables. It's not that he learns how to hold down a part-time job. My greatest responsibility is to provide for him and to teach him to be a godly man. And I want us to understand that that's exactly what God is doing in Matthew chapter 10. God supplies the needs for his disciples. And as he sent them out, they were forced to trust fully in God. They were forced to lean wholly upon him. He said, don't take any money. Don't take a purse, don't take a tunic, don't take a staff. Go with nothing. Because when they went with nothing, and they walked into the city, and they needed dinner, they needed a place to shower, And they needed anything. They had to fully rely upon God. And as they fully relied upon God, that enabled their faith to grow. That God will supply all of my needs. Not according to what I think that I need, but according to to His riches in glory. Verse 10 is a truth that comes that God provides not from ourselves, but from God. Look at verse 10. He says, don't take a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the workers worthy of his support. Verse 10 is a truth that the providence of God, that the providence comes not from ourselves, but from God. D.A. Carson said this. He said the church doesn't pay its ministers. The role of the church and the role of funding the pastor and the the associate pastor and the worship leader, whoever. The church doesn't pay its ministers. But D.A. Carson said it like this. He said, rather, the church provides its ministers with resources so that they can freely serve. One of the things that I think Southern Baptists do better than anyone else is missions. And this is why. Not that, that we have the greatest uh, mission program or mission uh, 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 opportunities, but this. In the Southern Baptist Church, when you surrender to the mission field, you say, God has called me to bring the gospel to the nations. And you, you leave and you go to the mission field. Your only job is to do what God has called you to do. As a commissioned missionary from the Southern Baptist Convention, from the International Mission Board or North American Mission Board, your only job is to do what God has called you to do in the mission field. Never again do you have to worry about fundraising. You don't have to send any letters of support. You don't have to come back every six months or every year and a half to raise support. The International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board says we will pay for your salary. We will give you you health insurance. We'll give you life insurance. We will take care of your financial needs because we understand that unless you are free from the burden of financial worry, that you will not be able to do what God has called you to do. And that is the role of the church as it pays its pastors and it pays its ministers, that you are to provide them with resources so that they don't have to worry about where their light bill comes from, so that they don't have to worry about where their mortgage comes from, so that they don't have to worry about where their next grocery bill comes from because they are commissioned to do what God has called them to do. And if they're consumed with the things of this world, then they will not be free to do what God has called them to do. So church... The worker is worthy of his support. Pay him what he deserves, so that he is free to do what God has called him to do. God sends us, God directs us, God supplies us, as He has called you. To serve. As he has called you to preach, as he has called you to teach, he supplies you with all of the tools necessary. You say, preacher, I've never, I've never been to an evangelism conference. I don't know how to share my faith with someone else. I don't know how to tell them about Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life even unto death. You don't need to know how to share the gospel if you know how Jesus has changed your life. Your testimony is the most powerful tool that you can use. You don't have to prove to someone that God exists. You don't have to prove to someone the apologetics. You you don't have to be able to answer all of these, these, these difficult questions if you can answer, I know He's alive because He lives within me. I may not be able to answer all your questions, but I can tell you what Christ has done in my life. The most powerful tool you have in evangelism is your testimony. Acts chapter 4, verse 20. I want to leave us with this. Acts chapter 4, verse 20. Peter, James, John, the disciples have been warned. Peter and John had been warned. They were entering into the temple man walking up to them, begged them, or not walking up to them, sitting at the uh, temple, they were begging him for money. Peter looked at him and said, Gold and silver have I not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. This man gets up and he doesn't listen to them. He begins jumping, praising God, giving God all the glory for he was healed. And the, the religious leaders, they got indignant. They said it's the Sabbath and they've healed this man. And so they arrest him. They beat them. And listen to what they tell them. They don't beat them and they don't, they don't accuse them of, of doing good things, but they say, they tell them, they say, speak no more in the name of Jesus. And they warn them, they say, if you continue to speak about this guy, Jesus, will kill you. Listen to Peter and James's, Peter and John's response. Acts chapter 4, verse 20. That's verse 19. Peter and John answered and then said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. Verse 20. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. When did Peter and John get sent out? The first time? After they had watched Jesus heal the sick, heal the lame, feed the thousands, calm the sea, cast out demons. When did they go out here? After they saw Jesus rise from the dead. After they saw the Spirit of God descend. After they saw 3,000 get saved to the day of Pentecost. They said, you can beat us, you can throw us in jail, you can kill us, but I cannot help but speak about what I've seen and what I've heard. Church, if Jesus has transformed your life, if He's brought you out of life into death, out of death into life, if He brought you out of darkness into light, He's brought you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon the rock. If He has changed you, if He has brought freedom from bondage, if you are no longer a slave but a son, then you cannot help but speak about what you've seen and what you've heard. But maybe the reason you don't speak is because you've never met Jesus. Maybe you cannot speak about what you've seen and what you've heard because you have not experienced the grace of God. The grace of God is something that you cannot appreciate second hand when i went to india a few years ago i had seen all of the pictures i had heard all the stories i had heard of the poverty i had watched videos i had been to mission services where they they the missionaries stand up and and the church members stand up and they, they tell you about the poverty. They tell you about the slums. They tell you about the, the experience of dealing with the lepers and dealing with the orphans and, and, and how, how life-changing it is. But when you step off the plane and the smell of garbage, rotting Decaying flesh. It hits you in the face. That's an experience that you can't get from a video. And whenever you sit beside a leper who has no fingers, his nose is gone, and you hear his testimony of how Christ has changed his life. And when you sit beside an orphan with a scar on her face because her dad had cut her as a child, because as a deformed child, she would get more money begging on the streets. And when you hold a nine-year-old girl who had been rescued from a brothel, at nine years old, all of a sudden, you experience poverty and missions in a way that second and third hand would never do it justice. And I believe that so many people in our churches, they know about God's grace. They know the songs, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. They know the songs, grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all my sin. They know the songs, they know the stories, but they've never experienced the grace of God in an experiential way. How can I say that? Because if you'd experienced the grace of God, you would be like Peter and John. I cannot help but speak about what I've seen and what I've heard. There's someone here this morning who needs to experience the grace of God. That God loves you in spite of you. There's someone here this morning who has experienced the grace of God but has been silent. Just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of appeal. And as we do, I want you to ask this question. Have I experienced the grace of God? If the answer is yes, you cannot help but speak about what you've seen and heard. If the answer is no, I want to invite you to come and meet Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank You that You meet us right where we are. We thank You that You You see us in our sin. You see us as liars, as thieves, as adulterers, as murderers. And You love us anyway. Your Word tells us that God demonstrates His great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were haters of God, while we were murderers, while we were liars, while we were thieves, that Jesus died for us. The Gospel is clear. Jesus came for the sinner. He came for the prostitute. He came for the tax collector. He came for those whom this world has cast aside and says you're not good enough. Jesus says you're right, but I am. If that's you this morning, if your entire life you felt like you're not good enough, I'm here to tell you this morning you don't have to be good enough. Jesus is. Come experience His grace. There's some of you out there this morning. You know that you're a child of God. yet you've spent your entire life silent. This morning, you realize that God has sent you, He's directed you, and He's provided for you. And for you to be silent one more day is to be disobedient. Maybe you need to come to this altar and repent of your disobedience. Maybe you need to come to this altar and ask God to give you clear direction, specific direction from His Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to come And be a part of Redeemer. Become a member here Redeemer as an act of obedience. As we go into this time of invitation, may you do business with God. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to have the freedom to move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.